0: it's Lady. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to another episode of Show Your Work, where we examine all of our work issues, or we try to get to a lot of our work issues, through the work of Hollywood. And work joys, too. We were supposed to be working on this podcast on Friday, which is when we typically try and do this. However, there was like a crazy storm in Toronto… We wanted to be safe.
1: <laughs> uh, you, uh, you, how long did it take you to drive home? Uh, usually you have what, like a 25-minute drive? Yeah, like 30. Yeah. And that day it took an hour. Right.
0: Um, And it was, I mean, I almost couldn't even drive because a, a half-inch layer of ice in half an hour had formed on my car. I find the phenomenon when you don't actually have to drive through it of freezing rain really fascinating. Like a weather event that turns, I don't know, water into ice the moment it hits a surface. I actually am quite intrigued by it. Not when it's on my car, though, and I really had to struggle to open the door. And then I'm texting you from the car saying, my wipers won't move. Like I- <laughs> um, So yeah, we, um, we postponed this from Friday to Sunday. But it turns out that it worked in our favor because there were so many
1: updates on the stories that we wanted to talk about through the weekend. Yeah, which, as we know, is sometimes a method, right? Or used to be a method. It used to be that you could drop updates to a story or, you know, apologies or amendments and it would be like, well, it's on the weekend, so nobody's paying attention. Those days are kind of gone, though. No.
0: Fuck, it used to be that in our business especially, when you were working on, like, the reporting side… Um, it used to be that the summer was slow. You know, right. we, <laughs> we'd get through award season. It would be over in, what, March, April. And then we'd have here in Canada like Juno season and a few other things that took us to June. And then we probably, we used to have like a, a summer of planning and
1: getting ready for the fall. That doesn't exist anymore. It's high season all the time. All the time. Um, you know, without getting into politics, I feel like that's part of what this has wrought, right? When every day has a new bomb drop headline that, like, in the past would have taken up weeks, everybody's like, what else you got? What else you got? Clicks are up. Refreshes are up. Um, so there's more stories all the time.
0: But you know what? In in Like, in our case this weekend and our, in our case today… It did really work in our favor because we were going to talk about the Michelle Williams, Mark Wahlberg pay gap situation on all the money in the world. And if we had covered this on Friday, we would have missed probably the big,
1: you know, the big finish, the big closer. Well, big and big. Yeah, I feel like there were sort of a couple of uh, postscripts to it too, which which was really interesting. Uh, So what we were going to talk about though before was sort of the idea of how does this happen, right? People have kind of parsed it uh, a few different ways online. I know Sarah wrote about it on Laney Gossip, uh, but I I feel as though it's hard to get the full picture of how this went down in the beginning. And to everybody's credit, nobody expected this situation to ever be an issue because… Whatever deals Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams made in the beginning were the deals that they made in the beginning, when they made the original movie with its original lead actor. Uh, And all of this is coming up because uh, they recast Christopher Plummer in the role occupied by Kevin Spacey. Somebody somewhere is going, "Um, was it even worth it? Like, this is, after all this, like, we tried to do a good thing, look at what's happening. But, you know, we'll come back to that.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, there, there's how this happened, the, like, work negotiation agency salary side of it, and then there's how this happened, the how did this get exposed, which I also find is very, very interesting. But let's start. Let's start on the top level.
1: Right. So. <clears throat> Back in the day, uh, this movie is made. They hired these actors, Kevin Spacey and Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg, and they pay them whatever they pay them. And for the record, Kevin Spacey would retain all of what he was paid because he did the work. He was in the movie. Uh, I'm sure there are fees for box office that, of course, he won't collect, but uh, he retains all that money. Just to give us a picture of what is and has been spent, Right. And then uh, when the reshoots came around, uh, there are conflicting reports, but basically what we've read is that uh, Mark Wahlberg did not have a reshoots clause in his contract, uh, and that Michelle Williams did. Well, here's where we can do this in tandem,
0: because the first outlet to break open this story with the exclusive was USA Today. USA Today was the first to say, hey, this is what happened on all money in the world. They had to reshoot it. Mark Wahlberg got $1.5 million, Uh, and Michelle Williams got uh, sandwiches and cab chips. That's essentially, it's what per diem is, everybody. Like, when, when you say per diem, $80 per diem, it's essentially money for
1: you to get some lunch and, you know, get a ride. Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, you know, it's, yes, that's true, and it's sort of the lowest that they can pay you. However, let's be real, her food and her cab rides would have, Uh, would be taken care of. Um, That's just how this works. She would be picked up from her residence and driven to the set and so forth. So just for clarity, um, like I just don't want it to sound like she's an intern here, Sure. um, that $80 a day or whatever it would have been would have gone into her pocket such as it is. Sure. Not that like she would
0: miss $80 a day. But you know, the point is is that Fifteen or one point five million dollars versus eighty dollars a day, amounting to about thousand dollars. So USA Today is the first outlet to break open the story, and everybody freaks out. Afterwards, other outlets try and jump on the story with their own reports, and so this is when TMZ, for example, and IndieWire are all like, "Hey, um, just to dig deeper, the two had different contracts. Michelle had a reshoot contract." And Mark didn't, so he was able to go in and negotiate. However, USA Today came back with a follow-up exclusive with more clarifying details. This is the record that I'm choosing to go with, given that they were the first to go with the initial story. According to to USA Today's follow-up story, there was no reshoot difference in the contracts between Michelle and Mark. Neither one of them had
1: stipulations about reshoots. And even if it were the case, in a contract like that, most of the time it would say, uh, actor will in good faith, agree to do reshoots, uh, you know, if necessary, blah, blah, blah. First of all, nobody thinks reshoots are going to be this extensive. They're usually talking about a couple of days. Uh, and largely speaking uh i'm sure it would say you know N- to be negotiated in good faith at the time blah 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 that's right in good faith is a really important uh phrase here because even though contracts and uh, films and everything are papered up like to the nines uh sometimes you need to go on a given day we need to do this in 3 days because otherwise we lose Michelle to her next movie or whatever and often things are Uh, kind of said, okay, well, we're going to work it out, quote, in good faith. I don't know if this was the case, but it would not be unusual for either or both of the actors. Again, the -the above-the-line creatives, I'm not talking about asking the audio people to do this, but for them to show up and do the work and assume that the money part would be worked out uh, kind of on the back end. That's not unusual. No. And the
0: reason why I'm being so firm about clarifying exactly what those contracts look like is because the people who are arguing in favor of Mark Wahlberg, he did nothing wrong, are basing it some of it on, hey, they just had different contracts. Nope. This has nothing to do with having different contracts and one had a reshoot clause and the other didn't have a reshoot clause. Let's stop quibbling
1: over that detail. But maybe I'm going to piss you off then. Mark Wahlberg did nothing wrong. He did not do anything wrong. I entirely disagree. Okay, let's go. Here's what I think of Mark
0: Wahlberg now that we have the complete picture and he has donated his
1: reshoot fee two times up. Well, let's just start from a point of agreement. I think that you and I probably both agree that the 1.5 reshoot fee that he donated plus uh, the 500000 that was donated by William Morris on behalf of Michelle Williams… Is like, that's, that's, uh, that's hush money, basically. That's paying money to make this situation go away. I, totally.
0: And that's why, like, someone said to me the other day or yesterday, um, it was a classy move on his part. Classy move? It was his only move.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, you know, he did not in any way look good no matter how this story came out. Uh, but I'm not sure that means that he had, uh, that he did something wrong. So, okay, you get the call. Hey, they need you back. Uh, and make no mistake. Uh, just to be clear, William Morris is a, an agency that is massive, has hundreds of agents. I know people were talking about, obviously she and he have different reps and that's fine. Uh, but it's entirely possible that, their two representatives would barely know who the other was, let alone be talking in the lunchroom. Just to give a little picture here. Also disagree on that point. Okay, go on.
0: I, I, I get it. Like, I mean, typically in an agency, one agent is not going to know what another, another agent is doing, except that Walbert's agent is Ari Emanuel. Yes. Ari Emanuel's the head of WME. Yes. So being that Ari Emanuel's the head of WME, he's not only just Mark's agent, he is the supervisor and the overseer of the entire agency. Yes. It is within, very much within his purview to be aware of the contracts of what some of his major stars are signing onto, especially when they're given, when they're within the same project.
1: Uh, To a certain extent, yeah, but already we're talking about Ari Emanuel and not about Mark Wahlberg. So let's continue. Uh, So Ari Emanuel is not the head of the agency by accident. You get there because you are a tough negotiator, and this is one of those things where we pull back the curtain. Do not let any of these stars fool you. They're all about the art, and I love the project, and I love the whatever. The reason that they retain agents who take 10% and managers who take 15% and all the rest of it is so that those people can be exceedingly tough about money, so that the actor can be the artistic whomever. And their representative on the phone can be like, get out of here. We're not doing this. Forget it. So the reshoots come around. And as uh, was reported somewhere in the press, I think I'm quoting somebody here. Please forgive me. He has them over a barrel. They cannot do the reshoots if he and Michelle Williams do not agree. Correct? No, if he doesn't agree. Because they need them They need him for most of these scenes. I have yet to see the movie. Right. So, um,
0: according to, as I mentioned, USA Today, the situation was that he had, Mark Wahlberg had star, co-star approval. So, when they decided that they needed to reshoot the film and when they got a commitment from Christopher Plummer and Michelle Williams and Ridley Scott was like, let's go, let's go, let's go… They took it to Mark, and according to the original sources who told USA Today that the two were paid differently, these sources say he has, this is where the contract comes into play, he has co-star approval and he could have killed it. So he held out, had them over a barrel is right. He fucked them. They wouldn't have been able to go forward unless
1: they had him and they agreed to his fee. But I gotta go back here. He didn't fuck them this is business. They need to do something new and he has approval. And so he says, yes, I will do it and it's going to cost this much money. And there's somebody who is getting away with murder in this situation and that's the studio. But we'll get there in a second.
0: I, that's not the point where I think that he went wrong. We're so, not, But we're not even done. We're yeah. not even done. That's not yeah. the point where I think he went wrong. So up until that point, sure. sure, I can agree with you that this is a business move. He's a business person. This is a business. And he did… He made the business play. Sure. 100%. Right. And you should be
1: paid what you're worth. Now, this is where there are a lot of people who love to uh, put the blame on Michelle Williams or her reps or whatever. Uh the idea that she should have asked for more. She should have said, yes, I, I'm i holding out for more money. She should have whatever, whatever. Uh, but again, the language of the contract is what comes into play here every time. Uh, as you say, if they're going to him with a co-star, you know, you don't go to somebody like Mark Wahlberg who is exceedingly busy for reasons – Uh, and say, maybe we'll do this, we don't know, we'll call you back. You go to that person with a given scenario, this is the co-star, these are the days, this is the thing everybody's in, uh, and make the deal in that moment. So I'm not sure she had the opportunity to negotiate as hard as she might have, uh, but for whatever reason, her deal is made. And there's another really interesting contract term here that can come into play. Sometimes when you're negotiating a contract of this type, uh, and not usually for an acting role, but in a situation where people are doing something that is similar, uh, you get what's called a favored nations deal. Is this like a known term? Or sh- Yeah, I think you should elaborate. Favored nations means that you're being given a given offer and nobody in the same situation is getting a better deal. Again, this is more for ensemble pieces or you know things where people are more on the same level if if there were six people doing a particular kind of like i don't know mount in Star Wars as they ran into fighter jets uh they might get a favored nations deal uh in the absence of that language you know that you are negotiating only for your own self uh and this is where it gets really sticky and uncomfortable because you know, we're talking about, oh, well, she did it for the love of the project, or should she have negotiated harder, or, you know, would we feel this way if she got $1,000 and he got 20000 Like, what is the size of the disparity that allows for this to be scandalous, but most of the time it's being put unfairly on her, is my opinion. Yes. And again, you know, agents… I hear you on Ari Emanuel and what he does or does not know, but also by virtue of being the head of the agency, everybody else is working for him, and he's not known for being a a soft and gentle individual. Can you imagine being uh, a rep for Michelle Williams' team and saying, could you help us get more money, please? Like, you'd be eviscerated and tossed from the building. Yeah, and I think that
0: this is what is so this is what we still need to talk about, even after I think it's been two years since the Sony hack. And it came out on um, the American Hustle deal that Jeremy Renner and Bradley Cooper were paid so much more than Jennifer Lawrence and Amy Adams. And that was definitely a problem of agency negotiation and agents and going in and getting what they needed. Um, However, two years after that, If you're dealing with a situation that's in-house agency and one of those agents is Ari Emanuel, I expect better at this point if they are true to their commitment to move this
1: forward, to change the conversation. But again, an agency and an individual agent who works on commission is doing the best they can for their individual client Uh, and nobody's going to, on its face, be angry at an agent who gets a lot of money for their client to do a little bit of work. Here's who absolutely, honestly knew, uh, both in this case, actually, and in the case of American Hustle. It's the studio. It's the production company. They're the ones who have the budget in front of them. They're the ones who have the bottom line and look at it and go, you know what? This is a gross disparity here. We are the people who are doing this. We are the people who are paying him exponential multiples more than she is for the same job. Even if she agrees to it, the people who have those two numbers beside each other for cast A, cast B, and cast C, uh, and don't know what Christopher Plummer was paid, but it wasn't a little uh, to come in at the last minute and take this on, They are the ones who are ultimately responsible here. They are the ones who, no matter what is happening when the agent is on the phone and no matter what is happening, no matter how powerful that agent is in terms of knowing what the budget is, ultimately the responsibility lies with the production company who has the full picture uh, of what it looks like. And they are the ones who go, okay, here's where we could squeeze more money. Here's where we couldn't. They're the ones who absolutely can call Michelle Williams' people back and say, you know what, Wahlberg was like pushing real hard, it's a bit awkward, Uh, you know, can she take a 50 grand honorarium? Will she something? There's, I really want to, like, there's where the responsibility ultimately lies. And that's also the case with American Hustle. The people who see all of the money are the ones who see the disparity. In the case of Ari Emanuel and Mark Wahlberg, we can get into who might or might not have known what, and we can discuss that. But when we're discussing this on a larger level or on actors and uh, other creatives who don't share an agency, sharing this kind of information is not common. It's not done. But ultimately, the people who hold all the cards are the people who hold the budget, and that's the studio, the production company, uh, the distributors – And they're the ones who ultimately fell down here.
0: Yeah. I I think up to the point where the reshoots happen and the reshoots are completed, for sure. And in the end, yes, ultimately the studio and the production company that has the budget line items and is looking at it is going to be like, oh, shit, we got away with not paying anything to Michelle Williams. We gave Mark his shit. Great. Let's move on. Right. Up to that point. For sure. Okay. Where I find fault with Mark Wahlberg is what happens after. Okay. They're now junketing. Yeah. They're promoting the movie. Yes. And the biggest story around this movie is how they pulled this together, right? Like, we talked about it on this show, that they were able to reshoot this movie literally like three weeks before its release date and get it done with a whole new face. Yeah. It's it's, it's a huge undertaking. It's a monumental undertaking. So that is the main story of this. They're out there, and it should be, and they're basically selling the film on the strength of this. And Ridley Scott makes a big deal of… It couldn't have been done without everybody coming together and dedicating their time and devoting their time and not taking any money.
1: Yeah, he specifically says, uh, I did it for nothing, Michelle did it for nothing, obviously Christopher Plummer was paid and we paid the crew. Again, I keep mentioning that because the crews on Everything we ever talk about are paid regular people wages and need to be paid, and they don't get any artistic glory out of going back and rectifying something for social reasons. Yeah. They need to be paid. But he goes ahead and says all of this, Mm -hmm. and in that quote, notably doesn't mention Mark Wahlberg.
0: Right. Right. So we're hearing now that Ridley was under the assumption that Mark also donated his time. But he
1: didn't say that. I have problems with that because in that quote he specifically mentions everybody except Mark Wahlberg. Given the information that we have going
0: with USA Today, which again broke the initial story and the follow-up, the, the sourcing from this suggests that Ridley Scott was incensed when
1: he found out. That's fair and good and great. Like, and again, in case you find this unbelievable… It's not that unbelievable. Different movies have different sort of forms and producers have different uh, ways that they deploy information, but the director's job is to ask for shit and Mm -hmm. get it done. And so in this case, that means I need these actors on this day five minutes ago, get it done. He's not concerned with uh, who's being paid what until after the fact. Until after the fact. So I
0: certainly buy that. So it comes out and I'm Mark Wahlberg and I'm like… Oh shit! We're on a junket right now, and now I'm finding out Michelle did this for free. What happens? A whole month goes by. The Golden Globes happen. Uh huh. After the Golden Globes, then the USA Today report comes out. Uh-huh. Then everybody hits the wall. Then all these like other reports come out, and then he says, "Okay, here's the 1.5. Um, I'm donating it to Times Up.
1: Thanks." Oh, look, I have no objection to the idea that he, uh, you know, took what he could get away with and only developed a social conscience when it became uncomfortable for him. When it was his only
0: move. Yeah. I'm not… I don't disagree with that
1: at all. And I
0: don't disagree with you that he's a smart business person and he went in trying to demand what he's worth. Where I have an issue is once… The moment that you find out, hey… My agents worked harder for me than hers worked for her, perhaps, and the production company in the studio, he, 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 heed themselves and ran away with all of this. That's when if you're Mark Wahlberg and you are one of the, no, the highest paid person in the industry, according to Forbes 2017, this is when if we expect change collectively, the leaders in the industry have to step up. He didn't. He was moved to step up. He was shamed into stepping up. That's where I have a problem with Mark Wahlberg. I mean,
1: yes, this is true, but this is only a story because the enormity of the gap between them is so large. You are never paid the same as your co-star on any given picture. This is an understood thing. You know that thing where they say, like, on an airplane, you guaranteed didn't pay the same as the person sitting next to you? You either paid more or less than they did for their seat? It's like that. Everybody negotiates everything, and it's it's not communism. Like, everybody has a different pay structure. So, you know, it, it, this is a gross disparity, but one could assume that on any given project, the, as you say, the highest paid actor in Hollywood, which is bananas, or the highest gro- box office grossing, is that the… Uh, it's He's the
0: highest paid actor in Hollywood.
1: As of… August 2017, Forbes. We really do need to get uh, photo reactions happening here because uh, I wish you could see my face. I read that this morning before we were here and I still can't quite digest it. But as the highest paid actor in Hollywood, he's always going to be being paid more than his co-star. If he's in a buddy comedy with another man, he's going to be paid more. If he's in a rom-com which he never is because we know that, like, he's going to be paid more. He's automatically going to be the highest paid person in the room. So the responsibility of advocating for change, you know, is only as apparent in cases like this where the disparity is gross and disgusting. I'm not saying that he shouldn't be… I'm not saying that he shouldn't be concerned about it, that yes, uh, shaming him and having no other move, as you say, isn't a long time coming, but this has also been his reality for for some time. There are probably cases where he's being paid more than the director, and not a few cases. Most cases, he's probably
0: being paid more than the director, or if not all. That's right. Um, on a Transformers movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> In this movie, too… He is 100% the supporting actor to a lead actor that is Michelle Williams. Um, the, the 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 way this movie is structured, nobody's going to see this movie for Mark Wahlberg dismantling Transformers or like, I don't know, whatever it is that they, we do nowadays in a Transformers movie. This is an actor's showcase movie. Um, and so given that she was the lead, it was a month. It was a month. And after some shaming for him to make his classy move. This is where I have an issue with Mark Wahlberg or and all the Mark Wahlbergs in Hollywood where time's up. I mean, the whole point of it is to advocate for equality and women alone can't do it. You're going to have to need the leadership and the leaders and the actors in Mark Wahlberg's position when they find out of this kind of inequality It won't change unless they start sitting down with their agents and saying, Hey, listen, I want to be part of something that is fair to everybody. Get my money for me, 100%, make that priority number one, two, and three, and four. But when you get to it in number five, also let's do it in a way that's fair. That is never going to be Mark Wahlberg.
1: And that's why I'm not going to let him off on this one. But nobody was. And uh, nobody was uh, was letting him off, but I think that that's an important distinction. When I said, I don't think Mark Wahlberg did anything wrong, I said, and I stand by, I don't think he did anything wrong in the negotiation of his fees or in the collection of them. He's entitled to do that. And I think uh, I stand by that. You're talking about his reaction to the revelation, uh, and that's fair enough. Where this gets really interesting and where it becomes kind of a qualitative discussion is that the two camps of people who discuss this, other than all the people who don't even know this is happening, uh, are people who say, he's the highest paid actor. The end. Done. He is who he is. And the people who go, but she's the Oscar nominated one. She's the Golden Globe winner. Like, part of the reason we're having this discussion is because they could not come from two more different camps. They could not be more of two different worlds in Hollywood, which is really hilarious. Uh, The, you know, the artist who is bringing this beautiful story to life and is just so grateful that they were able to do this, and the guy who makes Transformers. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, which is kind of amazing. You know, had this taken place between almost anybody else who were maybe closer on the celebrity spectrum, uh, this it wouldn't have happened as publicly. And you're right. When the revelation came out, a more savvy performer would have used the opportunity to boost his own profile instead of, as you say, being sort of dragged into the situation late in the game.
0: But let's talk about him being dragged into the situation late in the game, because here's where we want to get deeper into the angles of how this happened. And what mechanisms Hollywood, at least those who find themselves in an inequality situation like Michelle Williams, what resources they have available to them. Because I actually find it very, very interesting that it went down this way. So they do the reshoots, negotiated it's negotiated that Mark Wahlberg gets $1.5 million and Michelle Williams gets per diem, mm-hmm. uh, which is still my favorite. Like, I mean, I just love that it's per diem. Right. And the reason why is because, like, for instance, I work on a small TV show. I get per diem. And the per diem I get when I go away on location and shoot
1: on trips is pretty much the same as what Michelle Williams got. Well, because per diem is per diem. <laughs> um, that is… I, I, you know, there were people early on, it's gone away a bit, but there were people who were wondering whether it was a violation of her contract. Uh, and per diem giving her that, which as you point out, Michelle Williams does fine. She's not, uh, you know, a giant blockbuster, but she does fine. Yeah. Uh, but the reason that she got that per diem, that $80 a day, is because otherwise it would be a violation of… Like SAG-AFTRA, like union rules and all that. That's exactly right. Um, That she, uh, you know, in order to engage an actor, you have to have them be paid, especially on a movie of this magnitude. You know, this doesn't apply to student films. So that's why she got that money at all. Um, Because you are… Obligated to give that to anybody yep. who is engaged on your phone. Like it's
0: the only sort of area where I now can relate to Michelle Williams. <laughs> I have also gotten an eighty dollar per diem before for like five days of location work in Los Angeles, like covering the Oscars. And so, yes. Yeah, so anyway, let's let's revisit. At the beginning, they shoot this movie. Everything is fine. Kevin Spacey is exposed. They have to reshoot. The negotiations happens. The negotiations happen, Mark Wahlberg gets 1.5 million, then they start uh, promoting the movie, it comes out through Ridley Scott saying as a part of selling this movie, so many people were so generous, Michelle took nothing, I took nothing, we just wanted to get it done. Then the film gets some nominations, a month goes by, nothing happens, the Golden Globes happen, Time's Up happens. And then suddenly, I think it's two or three days after the Golden Globes and Time's Up and the buttons and people walking up and down that red carpet talking about equality that this story breaks. Right. Who broke it? Who were the people? Who were the sources? Because they know their shit, right? These these people clearly did not make up a story. It's true, mm-hmm. and it is justified by the fact that Mark Mark Wahlberg has now donated his 1.5. Yeah, of course. Million yeah, fee. nobody
1: was denying that this was this is not happening.
0: fake news, right? For lack of a sorry, but um, so this was not fake news. So, and USA Today then comes back with a follow up that becomes even more specific about how Mark Wahlberg held them over a barrel, as you said earlier. So in my, like, in my greatest fantasy, I would like to believe that Michelle found out. I would like to believe that, because clearly whoever was the source behind these stories to USA Today, these exclusives, they were doing it because they felt that Michelle Williams had been treated unfairly.
1: Or that Mark Wahlberg was being overpaid for what he brings to the production.
0: Or that there's no spirit of Time's Up, or it cannot truly be the case if this is allowed to go on
1: and this is not adjusted. But again, it's not about Mark Wahlberg. They should be dragging the studio. The studio is the one who allowed this to happen. Mark Wahlberg said, you want me for those reshoots? It costs this. And you know what the studio said? Yes. Nobody said, if you do that, Mark, you're taking the money out of Michelle Williams's mouth, out of Ridley Scott's mouth. I guarantee you that was not said, or if it was, it was said to Minion's six levels below this person, uh, and it never made it to his ears. To Ari, Ari Emanuel would laugh you out of the room if you said that. The studio is the one who allowed this to happen. Please continue.
0: Whoever allowed
1: it to happen,
0: this story got exposed by insiders in Hollywood with intimate knowledge of how these… both these contracts work. That's right. Not just Michelle's, not just Mark's, but both of how these contracts worked, how the negotiations worked, what the budgeting on the film was, and exactly the extra budgeting required to make the reshoots possible. These people went public to USA Today and they took out the media… or, and they went to the media in order to make this public shaming happen. And end up with a result that is probably the best result in the worst situation or like the best outcome in what was a terrible situation. I would love, I would love, love, love to believe, especially given how Michelle Williams has handled all of this, I would love, love, love to believe that at some point she found out about it and engineered this, this public shaming. I would love to believe it, and that might—that is going to be the conspiracy theory that I'm—I'm gonna—I'm gonna try and hang on to.
1: Well, uh, I think that we were talking about, you know, the fact that this story continued to unfold over the weekend, which has been a benefit to us. And so, late last night, I read her reaction to his donation, which I think is worth reading here. So she says, "Today isn't about me. My fellow actresses stood by me and stood up for me." My activist friends taught me to use my voice, and the most powerful men in charge, they listened, and they acted. If we truly envision an equal world, it takes equal effort and sacrifice. Today is one of the most indelible days of my life because of Mark Wahlberg, WME, and a community of women and men who share in this accomplishment. Anthony Rapp, for all the shoulders you stood on, now we stand on yours. So that, of course, is a reference to Anthony Rapp being the one who broke the story about Kevin Spacey, which was then, of course, quickly corroborated by many others, Uh, but the idea that Anthony Rapp felt emboldened because of what had been happening in a post-Weinstein era, and that because of that, because he was brave enough to do that, then the reshoots happened, which then brought this story out, which then allowed this move to happen. So… Whether or not she broke the story, her framing is incredible. Oh, it's perfect. It is
0: perfect. And that's the, that framing and that wording is why my smutty senses are tingling about this. The most powerful men in Hollywood had to listen. Oh, you made them listen, girl.
1: But again, <laughs> she does not say the studio listened, the studio did not turn around and say this was a problem on our part. Somewhere there is a line producer or an executive producer sweating their face off because they're like, you saw, you saw the numbers, that's what we did, we just did this, uh, who is now panicked that they're going to be in trouble as a result. Um, I think it's, I, whether or not she leaked the story, the handling of it has been masterful. And, you know… She on her part, for sure. Yeah. She didn't make a comment all last week when you know her phone was ringing off the hook looking for comments. She made the comment after it had been done, fixed, in her name. So that's pretty impressive. Yep. It
0: is impressive. And, you know, and the waitout was impressive. She was on holiday. So she's on holiday with her daughter. She's on holiday with her boyfriend. The photos that have been taken of her on holiday show Michelle Williams as she always looks, serene, uh, totally, totally peaceful. I mean, I would like to know. I would like to think that there's a little bit of a Mona Lisa, like that was a little bit of a Mona Lisa, that little, that beguiling, mysterious smile knowing that she had them. Now it's her turn to have them over a barrel. I will say, though, I mean, her handling has been perfect on the Wahlberg side The handling was they were panicked. I mean, USA Today breaks the story. And then, as we saw, we had all these follow up stories on TMZ and IndieWire attempts to be like, but his contract wasn't the same, right? Like, that is what was happening. That was a safe face move. Let's float the story. Let's try and get it out. Let's try and get it out there. Maybe my contract wasn't the same as hers. I don't know. Let's get it out there for three or four days until, okay, fine, let's just give the money. It's worth noting, too, that Wahlberg had not donated to Time's Up until this moment. His donation to Time's Up was the 1.5 renegotiated reshoot fee that he got for all the money in the world. Prior to that, he had not contributed to Time's Up. I'm not even sure if he mentioned Time's Up. Are you Up. surprised? No. This is Mark Wahlberg. Like, He's come on. He's a fucking guy. Like, um, and also, uh, as many other people have already mentioned… There are very, very few actors who have contributed financially to Times Up without being in conjunction with women. Like you mean stand- male actors. That's right. Yeah. Um, as in standalone situations. It's always male actor plus their spouse or partner or whatnot. It's never male actor, period. That's his name. Um I I mean for me. What I have seen too often in this business is a person like Mark Wahlberg finds himself in a position like this, makes the only move really that he can possibly make, and then the next day is treated like some kind of fucking hero. Let us not, going forward, and I know you're not doing it, I'm talking to the people out there, say, oh my God, you know, what a great guy, he did what he, 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 he you know, what a classy move. Again, that fucking classy move. Only move. And no, he is not your guy. This is not going to be the ally going forward of
1: Times Up. I promise you that. But as we go forward, it will be interesting to see. You know, uh, this is one of those things where you want everybody to be involved, you want everybody to be uh, on board, but there are people who will, you know, be able to use it to advantages, and those who who don't. You know, the people who. Uh, you go, are they are they in it for the altruistic reasons or if they're in it for personal reasons but it benefits the movement, does it matter? Let me just float one more conspiracy theory at you uh, as we close this out. Uh, as you said, you know, her handling of this has been masterful. Michelle Williams. Uh, and when we talk about who leaked the story, my idea here is possibly le- is possibly linked to the fact that I watched the first 10 minutes of America's Sweethearts last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sorry, but uh, I was thinking about this a moment ago. I was really struck at the Golden Globes by the fact that when Michelle Williams was asked, wow, how does it feel to have a nomination for this movie? She said, oh God, you know what? I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just thinking about the fact that I got to be here with Tarana and I'm so happy to be. Uh, promoting uh, the Time's Up movement, and so forth. She's firmly on message. She pushed aside the idea that her performance was even worthy of of a nomination. And let's be honest, nobody was talking about her really in conjunction with the role, in conjunction with the movie, right? Like it's not one of the performances that is really grabbing attention. That was a week ago. Uh Uh-huh. Do you think everybody is going to go see this movie now?
0: I don't know that if… I don't know if everybody's going to see this movie now, but to go back to our conspiracy theory, all of this broke two, three days after the Golden Globes during Oscar nominations
1: deliberations week. Yes, which means there's still time for voters to get their votes in, uh, which is huge. And I'm saying there's still time for… There's still time for people to see the movie, to make this movie into a different picture than it was, box office-wise. This could also be from the studio. The very people who perpetrated this can then turn around and leak the story and turn it into a story, which then makes her into a hero and makes everybody go see the picture. Hey, if that is the conspiracy theory that it wasn't Michelle
0: who leaked this, but the studio who who leaked this and threw Mark under the bus to make it happen, amazing. (laughs) I love that too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love that too. As like a revenge move for holding them over a barrel and like not doing it for free like everybody else. Hey, I'm on board with that theory as well. Whatever theory puts Mark Wahlberg in the position of being exposed as um, an in it for yourself
1: But asshole. he's allowed to be. No, now we're back around. He can be in it for himself when he's being paid. It's not until you find out there's a disparity… That there was a problem. Which is my
0: problem, when he found out there was a disparity. He didn't find out last week, Duanna. He would have known about it when they were promoting the movie, and he chose, because he's Mark Wahlberg, not to do anything about it until he
1: was forced to do something about it. That's fine, but he's still allowed to negotiate whatever the hell he wants back three months ago when this was all going In that
0: moment, 100%. But the moment it goes public that she, who is the lead of the film and carries it and makes that movie… Then you go back as Mark Wahlberg. What does it hurt you? Anyway. Um, anyway, so we'll see. Oscar nominations, January 23rd. Again, all of this goes down during the week that Oscar voters are deciding who will be nominated. Will Michelle Williams' name be called? And if it does get called, my God, I think that, that would lend a lot of like legitimacy to my conspiracy theory. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: So I have a confession to make. Uh, When I saw the headline of uh, the article that we're basing our next topic on, I sent it to you before I read the article. Um, And I felt okay about it. Uh, The article later proves itself to be worthy of our discussion But the actual title was, quote, Tyra Banks on Top Model and Why She Keeps Fighting to Prove Herself in the Industry. It's from Variety. It was published this week. And uh, so what did you think when you saw it show up? Um, I couldn't wait to read it. And it was one of those, like, save to the end of the
0: night or save for when I have a drink in my hand moments to savor. Because first of all, she also knows how to give a good quote. Like, Tyra is… a performative host, but she's also a performative interviewee. I love it. Some people are great at being interviewed and some people are not so much. And Tyra, like, I can see her, like, when I read a Tyra
1: interview, I can see Tyra giving this interview. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, And it's, it does not disappoint. Like, it's full of great quotes that we'll get to. Um, It's pegged to the return of Tyra Banks as host of America's Top Model, Which I kind of thought was done. Didn't you think the show was done?
0: I thought it was… I didn't think it was done. I just think people stopped caring about it because Rita Ora hosted it. Um, And I… but
1: I didn't… I didn't think it was done, no. I think that I thought that Rita Ora hosting meant there was going to be kind of a diffusion of the brand a little bit. That it was like, you know, other top models Rita Ora has known was going to be sort of where we were going. Right. So I, I really loved this article from a,
0: from a very self-absorbed, narcissistic perspective because I read it and I'm like, oh, I can see… <laughs> I, I read it and I'm like, man, this is in many ways how, like, I see my day going, which is really… Uh, how do I want to say this? I read this and I was like, oh, man, like, this is sort of how I wish people would see how my day goes, which is, yes, totally self-absorbed. But what I really appreciated, because you and I are both super into work, is breaking down what a work day for a woman looks like. She gets pretty detailed about how her day is segmented. Um, how much time she spends on production, how much time she spends shooting. She's a mother now. So the fact that the nursery has been built here at the workplace, how much time she gets to see her kid. This is, you can't do all the things that Tyra is doing without actually doing it the whole day and night. Um, And maybe because I segment my days like that, where literally the entire day, like there's no time for a break, I found that pornographic. I was like, man, I love reading things like this. That said, what also struck me later is men don't have to give interviews where they segment their day. I can't remember the last time I've read like an executive celebrity power producer male profile where he was like, I wake up and then from, you know… 6 to 8 I spend time with my kids and I get them out the door and then I go to my production company and I read some scripts and I meet with my partners and then I go do this and that and the other doesn't happen.
1: Well, I can think of one quasi exception that I really love uh and it's in the front of my head because I dined out on it this week this anecdote uh which I think is now moot but there was uh A couple of years ago, there was a profile of Ryan Seacrest, who, of course, is incredibly hardworking and incredibly busy, and he had arranged everything that he worked on uh, with Ryan Seacrest Productions and his radio hosting and supervising, you know, uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Million Spinoffs and so forth. Uh, The office building that he was in, which… Love this story… Uh, he had the different departments on different floors, so he went to the top floor at the start of the day and went down consecutively throughout the day so as not to waste precious seconds going mm-hmm. from floor 8 back up to floor 24. Uh, so, you know, it takes a powerful woman like Kelly Rippa to interrupt that flow.
0: And you know what the connection there is, too, is that both are television
1: presenters. It, yeah, absolutely. And that you have to be a lot of things when you're a television presenter.
0: But But, it's not the kind of job that gets taken as seriously in the public's eye. You know what I mean? Like, especially with Ryan Seacrest, he's a joke to a lot of people. Like, his reputation is such that, okay, he built the Kardashians, he was on American
1: Idol. I don't know. Like, there are are still people who snicker. Well, I think uh, one of the things that you are reacting to, or maybe that people react to, is that these people are and I mean this in the best way possible, ubiquitous. Uh, what Tyra Banks has done when she is uh, has the Tyra Banks show or when she was on The Fab Life or even with America's Next Top Model uh, and what Ryan Seacrest does is they are in your life and in your day every day or every week. Uh, so where the idea with films is this is an artistic piece that everybody had to drop their whole lives for and finish to work on because it's such an enormous piece of art, uh, the people who are doing the day-to-day seem kind of ordinary, like the people who watch them, who are just doing their day-to-day. Well, I think of soap opera actors too, right? Because soap opera
0: actors are, you could say, at the bottom of the hierarchy of artists in the entertainment industry… Um, I mean, I don't think people snicker at soap opera actors, but they don't hold them in the same regard as the ones who are on the cover of the major magazines. But you could say that soap opera actors probably, like, at the very least have to learn more dialogue in a shorter amount of time than any other people in the industry. It's pages and pages
1: and pages. All they do is talk. Right. And so there's a lot of work there. And this is what makes Tyra Banks so interesting is she is kind of the best at revealing a lot, at pulling back the curtain while simultaneously not saying a lot. You know, she talks really viscerally about every day when she was walking out to tape uh, the Fab Life that she had this feeling that she was being pulled back by a meat hook, which is, uh, again, real uh, real visceral. Uh, she gets you there. Uh, and then she also hilariously has anecdotes about things that I think most producers wouldn't talk about or would think was not the thing you want to hear in an interview about, uh, I mean, she talks about when when they were finishing America's Next Top Model, so no wonder I thought it was cancelled, about the party and the finances that went into it. I'm laughing because you're looking like you want to talk about this anecdote. Sometimes we debate uh, who's going to bring up what point. Um, but it was kind of amazing. Uh, you had a specific quote that you liked about it? I did. And it was the same quote that you
0: liked about it. So, you know, they finished the Rita Ora season and they had a wrap party at Ken Mock's place, who her producing partner. So she's like, we had a big wrap party at Ken's house. He transformed his backyard to this very fancy, gorgeous thing with all this food. We had a homemade donut bar and a coffee station thing, and I paid for half of it. <laughs> so we spent all this money on this rap party, and then a couple minutes later, there's a bidding war, and all these other networks want it. And I'm like, what? Did
1: we have to do that rap party? Like, she's still all she's still on the money. She's still focused on the money, even though they're about to sign a new deal and do more money. I mean, this is what makes her so interesting. She's really unwilling, even though she has quite literally made a career out of her beauty. And showing other people how to be beautiful, which is arbitrary at best and uh, may be seen as frivolous, she refuses to let go of kind of the more mercenary aspects. And that's what I really love about the article and about Tyra Banks as a whole. There's another section where they ask her, do you have any regrets in your career? And just to set this up, it's kind of near the end and they're talking about, you know, she's a producer, she has shows, she is now teaching at Stanford, which I don't think we expected, not that I don't think she's capable of it, but they ask her, do you have any regrets in your career? And this is what she says. She says, I was making a heck of a lot of money being a Victoria's Secret model back in the day and I said no to another three-year contract. Uh… And I shouldn't have done that. It all ended up okay, but if there was a young girl in my position, I was I would tell her to take the money, which is phenomenal to me, that she's still looking back, not just from a career success perspective, which has done very well for her, but of a taking care of oneself financial position. Yeah. I, in many ways, Tyra Banks is our immigrant parents. Like,
0: these are the people who are like, ah… Why do we have to pay for that dinner for all those people? I hate them.
1: (laughs) If I had taken that money, it was a risky move. Like, it paid off. My risk paid off. But, uh, you know, but I don't know. I should… That money was on the table. I'm reading this
0: interview with Tyra and I'm like, is Tyra my mother? Um, But this is… But this is the mindset, right? Like, this is the mindset when you are… I'm pretty sure, and you correct me if I'm wrong, she was raised by a single mom. I believe that to be true. Yeah. yeah like I, I, in most in most of the stories about the Tyra narrative, the Tyra narrative. Most of the stories in the Tyra narrative, it's Tyra and her mother and going to the ghosties, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. An only child. Yeah. An only child. That isn't that is what's indelible, right? That experience. You can't shake that.
1: No, and of course Tyra has been really public about the influence that her mother has had on her career. Uh, her mom is not a character the way some famous people's parents have become sort of characters in their narratives, but of course the most favorite Tyra Banks quote of all time is, uh, when my mama yells at me like this, it's because she loves me. You know, we're aware that she has been raised by somebody with exacting standards who, who, you know, requires a lot from her. Which is why the other part of this interview that is so fascinating to me is that there is Almost no mention of her child and of motherhood. And I'm so into it. Please don't get me wrong. You mentioned they talked about a nursery that she now has uh, in her production offices, that she's able to do that. As an ancillary to her work. What's amazing is that she's like, oh, and I just realized, hey, I'm powerful enough to do this. I can have the nursery there. She didn't have it to begin with. But they don't say how has your life changed and what do you want to pass on to your son and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to that for, to the fact that this is Variety who's doing the interview. It's not Glamour or, you know, another publication that's aimed at people who are picking this up in the supermarket. It is an industry publication. But I was so refreshed by the fact that that wasn't the thrust of the conversation.
0: Well, she literally says he's literally behind the scenes of her son. Right.
1: Which is true. Like, he's literally behind the sets is her point. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't… there is no quote here, and you know that there are other people who would have steered the interview that way and they would have printed it, now as a mother my priorities have changed or now I have such a different perspective and it changes what I want to do with the this and the that and the whatever. We don't have that here, and I really respect that A, Variety did not go looking for that quote, because they could have fished for it, and B, that she didn't provide it, or that if they did or if she did, it did not make it into the final piece. No, this is
0: Variety for a reason. Like, this is a trade publication. This is about her empire. This is about what she's doing, really, to be taken more seriously. I mean, the the title of the piece is Tyra Banks on Top Model and why she keeps fighting to prove herself in the industry. And it's a really interesting way of framing this article because uh, Top Model is an extremely successful franchise. I would say it's successful because, of course, it's a franchise. It's had this many seasons. Obviously, something that has been around for so long is not not successful. But it's also successful in the way it's shaped pop culture. Look at how many memes Top Model has generated. Look at how the show and how it works has become part of the the way that we um, frame language around pop culture. I'm not like a devotee of Top Model, but I do know that especially on social media, Top Model and like equating something to a Top Model moment is a thing that an entire generation does. You
1: don't permeate in that way without being a big deal. Yeah, but what I love about that is that's not what matters to Tyra. She'd be like, yeah, 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 that's great. Let's look at the bottom line. She's talking about Tyra Beauty. She's talking about working at Stanford. Give me my money. Give me my money and what are the things that raise my uh, profile as a woman to be respected as opposed to a pop culture phenomenon. I really love it.
0: Well, and again, we go back to Ryan Seacrest. I mean, he is known as what? Like the busiest man in Hollywood, like with all his jobs. Similarly, here's Tyra with Top Model, and she hosts America's Got Talent, and there's Tyra Beauty. There's, you know, an entire empire
1: that she runs, but we don't talk about it in the same way. No, we absolutely don't. And I don't get the impression from many people, but I get the impression that Tyra Banks… Like most celebrities who we've talked about, also has, you know, Tyra Banks has a production company, is developing projects all the time. I don't talk like this about many people, but I believe strongly that when she is no longer in front of the camera on any of her projects, that's going to be fine with her. That she is more interested in being the CEO of uh, Ty Ty Baby Enterprises (laughs) or… Uh, I do actually believe that is one of the names of her production companies. Right. Uh, Than she is with being a TV star or a model. And it's just really interesting. It is interesting, especially
0: the way this ended, this piece ended, because, you know, she did start off as a model and… And her final quote is, so just based on my past, my fight has been a little different. It's the model thing. And I think she'll always be inside of me whether people are seeing it or not. So I'm always like, let me show you how smart I am. Let me prove to you how focused I am. Even when I'm
1: 80 years old, I'll be like, but I'm a smart model. Right. Which is amazing. It's, I don't want to say primal wound, but, you know, it's that thing that happens when whatever your particular bugaboo is that you want to prove. There are a lot of models out there who don't care if you think they're smart or not, Uh, but she is intent that you see her that way. Uh, And it's really interesting that for many, many people, probably all of us, everything you do is in service of proving it and still feeling like you have to prove it even after this long in the industry. And not to bring it back to
0: me, but I will, in the context of work… In many ways, that's how I feel about being just a gossip columnist.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Like that there are people who are resolute in wanting to dismiss it or, or like play it down or whatever. One of the things that has been really exciting about that, yeah, is that people can be many things. Um, obviously, we've been talking so much about, uh about Me Too and about the revelations that have been revealed about uh, Weinstein and all of the other sort of uh, shitty men, uh, to use a, a term in, in common parlance, uh, and names that have been coming up, of course, have been Jodi Cantor uh, at the New York Times, and she's been working with Megan Toohey, Uh And I know there have been contributions as well from Amy Kaufman. And there was a there was an article that you sent uh, this week about Jody Cantor uh, discussing her day. Uh, And that her day begins with wrangling toddlers uh, before she goes to work and focuses on whatever it is. And the name of the article, of course, which is a series on the cut, is How I Get It Done. And as you often point out, nobody is asking men how they get it done. Yeah. Nobody is asking, well, 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 how do you manage it all? How do you… It's just a different way of phrasing the question, as Tina Fey would point out, how do you juggle it? Uh, With the sentiment behind how do you juggle it, as Tina Fey said, being, aren't you fucking it all up? Are you ruining everything? But on the flip side of that issue is that
0: a lot of men don't have to think about it. In the days preceding um, the Golden Globes, the New York Times announced, like, they made a point of coming out and saying, hey, our coverage of… the." Hey, our coverage of the Golden Globes is going to be more comprehensive than it used to be. We're definitely going to have fashion, but in light of Time's Up and the fact that we were the publication that led with the Harvey Weinstein revelations, we will be sending reporters that have been on that beat um, and a bigger team, both to cover fashion and to cover the whole Me Too movement.
1: Right. Uh, And then Jody Kantor tweeted later uh, on the night of the Globes Uh, because she had been tweeting about, you know, comments that people made on the red carpet or whatever, and then said, I'm not at the Globes, actually. Uh, I just changed a diaper at home. Uh, And I thought, yeah, like every woman ever, like you're doing both. It's not, oh, she didn't go to the Globes and like, oh, she had to stay home. It's, hey, I'm going to figure out a way to do both and to be both, which I really love. I referenced Amy Kaufman, who covers Hollywood for the LA Times and sort of has contributed to uh, some of the reports about the shitty men about uh, Me Too, and who has a book coming out about uh, Bachelor Nation, as it's called, which I love. Is there anything that is more maligned and kind of uh, down downgraded or uh, you know kind of seen as the bottom of the barrel, as you reference soap actors, than The Bachelor? but you can be both. Women are able to be both, have had to be both, and nobody requires men to be both. Nobody looks at a sports commentator who is, you know, at the top of his field and goes, but how do you feel about incisive political issues? They don't want to know, but they also don't call him vapid and narcissistic if he's not focused on those things.
0: You're right. And this idea of being both and then having to justify it comes up not just for Tyra, but it comes up for Jodi Cantor. I mean, she says in this article that, you know, she wanted to be a lawyer. And then she uh, pivoted to journalism. And she had a moment where the prospect, quote, that I could actually be a journalist, triggered a who-do-you-think-you-are reaction in me. It was only in going to law school and being unhappy there that I realized that I really, really had to try it. Like, this idea of imposter syndrome that Tyra has addressed, you know, I want to be known as a smart model like hey I can be focused, I can make business decisions. And then here's Jody Cantor who arguably along with Megan Toomey just broke the biggest story in 2017 is like who do you who do you think you are to go into journalism? I think that is really interesting. Uh,
1: well yeah and the idea that it can't be done, is only going to be changed and broken by people who try it, who do it one step at a time, who you know, I I'm I say this in the most positive way, but I bet if you look into the bylines of Cantor and Megan Tuey and Amy Kaufman, and everybody else, there are things that they wrote about that are not that important. There are topics that Tyra Banks covered on her show that are maybe not that incisive or that in retrospect, you kind of go like, uh, but you got to get there from here. The only way to get to be a powerful person who is able to be in control of all that they do and to say, yeah, I can do it and produce and write and be a journalist and a parent and whatever else is is to kind of wade through it and make mistakes. And I am so here for it. And I'm so here for people who are willing to try things and make mistakes and come out the other side.
0: I'm also really here for people who are collaborative and who highlight collaboration as a point of their success. Um, you know, in this piece, again, it's how I get it done. She she really makes a point of saying that working with a partner in on this big story, like Jody Cantor for for all intents and purposes, probably was the lead name associated with the Harvey Weinstein revelations that the New York Times uh, uh, reported, but she makes it clear here that working with a partner was the was essential to their success, her and Megan Tui's success, their success together, um, and that reporting and journalism in many ways is very much uh, the work of a team. As is many of the things we talk about here on this show.
1: Oh, the entirety of the entertainment business is based on a team, most of whom goes uncredited, right? That's Or right. unsung, despite the fact that their names are flying by after you've stood up and left the theater. That's right. And it's,
0: it's super Pollyanna to be like, you know, we can't get this done without a village of people and it's a family. But the reason why I think this is interesting from the Jody Cantor perspective is that I think the connection here I want to make is, to go back to Wahlberg, that's not a team guy. Not a team guy. Right. And when we talk about all kinds of projects like this, even where it relates to writing a book, when you are the person who's telling the story, you cannot get it done without your editor. There's, you and I have both written books.
1: The books wouldn't have happened without the editor. Oh, no. It's an intimate, intimate relationship with the editor, but that person's name is not front and center. No. Nor is the copy editor, nor is anybody else who flows through the process as a part of their day. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting kind of job to be in where one person sort of takes all the physical name credit… Uh, But there are necessarily dozens and tens of hundreds of people whose everyday focus is making that one name matter. Yeah. I
0: mean, the other part I love about this article is, like, she even gets into, and I know this is a feature on how it gets done, but… you know, her workspace and what her workspace looks like. And it, you know, she, she gives the idea that like there were boxes constantly around, like she's working in uh, the way I've envisioned it, it, like her workspace was kind of like a tornado had blown through it. It wasn't this organized, you know, your pencils are all in like this one little container and all stacks of papers were very, very meticulously bound. Um, that kind of shit is pornographic to me, but it also is part of why we do this podcast. We think work is sexy. What work looks like, where it happens, the workspace in which it happens, all of that is sexy to me. I go back to the West Wing um, and some of my favorite scenes involving Ainsley Hayes was when… Remember they like stuck her in that dungeon of an office and no one could find it and like running yeah, she was were running working in like a boiler room. <laughs> And I loved those scenes. Like, you got to see the little cave, the little hole in the wall where the work happens.
1: Well, I love that we're talking about this. This is not where I expected to go. But uh, one of the things that I loved about the newsroom, which I otherwise hated, uh, because Sorkin. uh, (laughs) Fucking Sorkin. Fucking Sorkin. But the newsroom was impeccably… Designed uh, in its set design and in even to down to the types of rolling chairs and drawers that they had were what I know to be true in a newsroom. And the fact, and I've talked about this ad nauseum, and the idea that when people in a newsroom talk to one another to like tell secrets, you don't creep off in a corner, you face each other in the middle of the room because then you are literally watching each other's backs because there's kind of nowhere to hide, there's no walls, there's no secret corners. Um, So, yeah, that is sexy. And I was thinking as you were talking that uh, a lot of writers often… there are periodic calls to, you know, tweet your workspace uh, and they are fascinating to look at, uh, see if you can find a hashtag like that on Twitter or Google. Uh, It's as satisfying as like a pimple popper video just to kind of scratch the itch of, yeah, nobody's workspace is perfect. But it's the imperfections and the piles of papers and the tax boxes that actually make it delicious and real and make you realize how how messy and dirty and amazing it is to do the work.
0: And finally, you… I think we were in, like, hour 10 of Golden Globes writing… <laughs> And you were already thinking ahead to this week's podcast, and you sent me a note, and you said, don't let me forget to talk about, I read it, didn't see it. Right. So, I don't know what that means in, like, totally. So, what does this mean?
1: Well, a few weeks ago, I think, on this podcast, I thought you were going to say when we were in hour 10 of a given podcast episode, <laughs> uh, much to Yasik's chagrin, uh, I said, that's I should be the name of my uh, epitaph, I read it, I didn't see it, because… Obviously, we can't all see everything. Uh, There's a lot going on, but often I will read a script uh, and form part of an opinion on a project that way, or often a script is available long before the production actually happens. And I really like doing this and it makes me feel informed, but we got a lot of letters from people saying, What is that? How do you do that? What does that mean? Uh, So the short story is. Scripts are available online more than they've ever, ever been. Uh, Usually the best way to find them, there are databases. uh, IMSDB, the Internet Movie Script Database, uh, has a lot of them and also uh, TV scripts as well. Uh, You want scripts and not transcripts, uh, which scripts are in script format. But often these days you can just literally Google uh, name of project script PDF. PDF is key because, again, if you don't… if you find the PDF, that's a a photograph, basically, of the script as written, uh, whereas if you… a script can just be a transcript. Uh, But I find them to be an invaluable, delightful, delicious resource, and scripts are pretty quick to read. But then I found myself wondering, why don't other people do this? Like, why don't you read more scripts, for example?
0: Um… I mean, listen, I don't really love how a script is laid out. Like, <laughs> go on. <laughs> I find that it takes me out of the story when the, like, the direction, um, I don't know the terminology, but whatever. Like, the then the door opens. Oh, right. The action line. Yeah. Right. Okay. It takes me out of it. Um, and I have a hard time imagining it.
1: Sure. And I think, too, that… Uh... You know, scripts are, the reading of a script is better in some cases than others. Like a really great read that I read recently was the pilot script of Broad City. Uh, and without seeing what's happening and without knowing what it ultimately becomes, you can feel the rhythm between Abby and Alana, uh, who had different names, I think, in the in the original pilot. Uh, and you can kind of see what's happening. I don't know that I would enjoy reading, say, The Shape of Water, which is uh, largely non-dialogue and is going to rely on images and music and uh, sort of swells to make you feel a kind of way about what you're supposed to be seeing. And it is a visual medium, uh, obviously, but at the same time, the script is what sells the project. Somebody writes the script and sells it before anything ever hits the paper. The director takes their inspiration from the script. Uh, note to listeners, I actually originally said his inspiration and corrected myself. Mm-hmm. So please note that uh, part of showing your work is knowing it's always a work in progress, even over here at Feminism Central. Uh, and scripts are kind of where where interpretations begin. Uh, so… I'm super into it, uh, and but I do agree with you that it's about dialogue-heavy movies where they… where it has the most resonance. Mm-hmm. I, Tanya is a great read. Yeah. For example.
0: Well, I… you know, one of the scripts I know quite well is one of the films I like so much, and um, it's Shakespeare in Love. That's a great script. It mm. really mm-hmm. pops. Yep. Um, again, as you just said, because it's dialogue, it's… in fact, it's… The whole point is dialogue. It's working out dialogue. It's about, you know, how this writer is using his intimate his intimate relationship with this person to then translate it into dialogue in a play to workshop things. Yes, that's exactly. right. Yeah. So that is one hundred percent a script that i could I can read. I have all the time for. It. But there are, yeah, most most of the newest the newer scripts I have a hard time with just because, you know, the interruption in there. And it's but also it's a practiced. It's a practiced skill. You write scripts? I do. That is, And so that is a skill that is a muscle that you already have. It is something that I I think that if I probably read a script a day, it would be a muscle that I would be able to work on. And if you ask me the same question two months from now, I'd be like, oh yeah, like I've gotten used to, you know, the directions in there and it it doesn't bother
1: me anymore. But again, it also uh, makes me think of a conversation that we had about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child uh, when that was released, which is uh, the book that was released is the uh, two halves of the play in script form. And a lot of people really didn't like that, I think partly because they weren't used to reading scripts, as you say, but also because by all accounts the theatrical production is really spectacular, but hugely reliant on special effects and of the 3D, 4D experience yeah. of being in the theater. So, you know, in some cases, it's only part of what the experience is.
0: Well, and and that's what's, I mean, listen, when we go back to school times, all of our first introductions to plays was in written form. Sure. Like, Shakespeare th- on the page. Very few of us went
1: to see Twelfth Night before reading 12th night unless of course you had like a super cool teacher who's like guys let's go see 10 <laughs> things i hate about you sure
0: exactly <laughs> and so but again back then plays and productions um didn't have like special effects and you know very very intricate scene changes most of it was talkie
1: talkie i love how <laughs> you're talking about back then like it was <laughs> eons and and decades and decades ago like it's it wasn't that long ago. Yes.
0: Um, well, and I… But I, I do see the written form of a play, for example, in a different way than a script. As a… Than a screenplay, you mean? That's or a right. television teleplay, yeah. as they're called. That's right. Why is that? I… Again, I think that it's much more distracting in… The, the scenes are a lot shorter. In? A television teleplay. Yep. Yeah. Or a film. Right? Yeah, that's so true. That. That staccato, it becomes a staccato. It becomes, like, so quick. Oh, change. Quick change. Whereas in a play, something is I can immerse myself
1: in that moment
0: for a little bit longer
1: before I get, like, some sort of direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, An entire act of a play might take place on essentially the same stage. Yeah. Uh, Or in the same room, right? Right.
0: But, I mean, I know that this is your mantra in life, and the way you are is like, now you're just going to do this, just so you can say you can do this. Oh, Reddit didn't see it.
1: Well, I no, I do like to see them. I, I Don't get me wrong. I want to see things. But when we're all kind of in the conversation of having to know what's going on and keep up with all kinds of pop culture, sometimes the way that I get around things that I haven't been able to see yet is to read them and see, do you get… the the sense of what it is. And again, it's not going to work for a musical. It's not going to work for like Coco, which I saw was, and was extremely endearing, uh, but which is not going to jump off the page. But if you want to try it out, uh, just take a stab, Google the script that you're looking for, uh, especially scripts that are in contention for awards season right now are often being tweeted out or otherwise released. They're fairly easy to get, Read them. See if you could be like a studio head. Like, would you give something a green light based on what's on the page or see what you think about the changes between script and screen of something you've seen? Let us know. Hit us up.
0: And hit us up on Google Play and iTunes. Leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening to show your work. Um, We'll be back next week with more work.
1: Work hard. See you next time. Bye.